test. Hey. All right. Uh, this past week, I was in Boston from Monday through Thursday. And for those of you who know, Boston is an odd place to explore because it's a city that is really, really easy to get lost in. Instead of roads going north or south and east to west as normal city streets go, you have a lot of diagonal streets in Boston going from like southwest to northeast. And as these streets cross, you get intersections that are very confusing. You have to figure out, when I make that left turn, is it a 90-degree left turn, or a 135-degree left turn, or a 45-degree left turn? Uh, most of the roads are also, they curve, um, because the road engineers, it's not that they were sadistic, but they were working in past centuries when they couldn't just cut through forests and hills and marshes. Later engineers didn't straighten out these problems because they had to accommodate existing buildings, many of which were historical landmarks in Boston. And perhaps most confusing of all, because Boston developed organically over time, slowly incorporating the surrounding suburbs, the names of the roads, they changed from mile to mile or sometimes even from block to block. I'm not a terrible person with directions. When my friend says to me, hey, let's meet in Manhattan at the Chick-fil-A on 37th Street and 6th Avenue, it's pretty easy, I'll find it, I can count. But when my phone ran out of battery while I was trying to get to the parking garage where I left my car in Boston, I was in trouble. Being stubborn, I tried to figure it out by myself. I would jog a couple blocks this way and look to see if it looked familiar, jog back, go in a different direction, try to find where I parked my car. But eventually, I had to ask for help. Excuse me, sir. Do you know where the post office square parking garage is? I would get blank stares. Ma'am, ma'am, can you point me towards MLK Street? Again, shrugs. I was starting to panic and sweat, and I found myself thinking, I hate it here. I hate Boston. But just then, mounted to a pedestal by the sidewalk, I spotted a map designed for people like me. And I found on the map a sticker, a yellow dot that said, you are here. And I found the corner where I eventually would need to go. Once I could see where I had come from and where I needed to go, I felt safe. It's like a light switched on for me. And I began to see beauty where before I had only seen foreboding shadows. I could sense Boston's charm and dignity. And in that moment, I began to wish maybe I could stay a little bit longer. The point is, we all get lost sometimes. And when we're lost, when we can't point to where we came from, when we don't know where we're going, if we can't do those two things, then we can't walk with courage and confidence. If we can just do that one thing, though, find a place on a map that tells us where we come from and when we're going, that's when we can be confident, knowing that whether we're moving quickly or slowly, every step is taking us closer to our goal. Today is Alamdown Church's 32nd anniversary. On this and on other special days, we need to take a moment to think about where we come from and when we're going. In our passage for today, we will see that because Jesus could answer those questions for himself, he was able to see what he needed to do and could look at the people around him with love. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for what you have planned for us. Whether the road ahead is full of stormy clouds and torrential rain, or whether the road ahead is full of sunshine and ease, 
We know that you are in control, and you are the one that guides us into our future. Help us to look at the world with Jesus' perspective and trust in your love as Jesus did. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be made holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll be reading from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 15. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water in a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, what kind of week did you just have? What kind of week lies ahead of you? Perhaps it's been stressful or difficult. For some students, I bet there have been exams or papers, or perhaps you've had to make major decisions, commit to where you're going to go next. And for all of us, there has been enough rain, more than enough rain to darken our mood and to change our plans. And there are always people in any congregation having to deal with unexpected setbacks or sickness. We all face challenges that tempt us to become selfish or bitter or hard-hearted. But no matter how hard you've had of a week, I want you to compare it to the week that Jesus is facing in today's passage. Verse 1 tells us this is right before the Passover celebration, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that a storm is about to break over his life, that with the Passover, his hour for departure, he is facing his most stressful week. He knows that he has to die as the Passover lamb. He knows that he will be carrying the cross and paying the price for all of our sins. During a hard week, it is hard enough to stay motivated and focused, even when people around you are supportive. But Jesus was aware, as verse 2 tells us, 
that the devil had already prompted and put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. So Jesus goes into this difficult week knowing that his close friend is about to betray him over some silver. He knows that the powerful in Israel are prepping liars to take the stand to convict him on false charges. He knows that the crowds will be swayed to chant crucify against him and his supporters will run away. But even though he knows what hard things await him to do, and even though he knows that the people around him will disappoint him, Jesus doesn't get depressed and Jesus doesn't get withdrawn. He knows what we will do against him, but that doesn't stop Jesus from blessing us. Facing a terrible week, Jesus still loves us, and he's able to do this because of verse 3. Jesus knows something that allows him to love well, even when facing a difficult week. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. The world can't bring Jesus down because he is confident that the Father will raise him up. He knows that his destiny is to have all the glory, all of the authority over everything. Another way to describe Jesus' mindset is that he knew that he had come from God. He knows that he is going to return to God. Jesus knew where he had come from and where he was going, so Jesus was never disoriented, never confused, never felt lost. Even when people blindfolded him and punched him in the face, spinning around and saying, who hit you? If you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. Even in the midst of that abuse, Jesus knew exactly where he had come from, and he knew exactly where he was going, and so he is able to take each step with purpose, and with compassion and love for those around them. So when life, when your life is dizzying, when it seems like people are picking on you for no reason at all, remember that you came from God and that you are returning to God. Point to the one who is your creator. Point to the one who will welcome you home. Remember that with a loving tenderness, your origin is that God knit you together in your mother's womb. And know that your ultimate destiny is to be in a place where the Father will wipe away every tear from every eye, letting you know that truly you are safe and home. Remember God's voice will say to you one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Because when you know where you come from, when you're sure about where you're going, you will be able to sing and laugh and dance and love despite it all. I want you to think about soldiers who are returning home from the battlefield. Fairly recently, we wrapped down our war in Afghanistan, and many of those soldiers took a long journey home. Soldiers who are on returning flights don't complain when the plane is cramped. They might sit in the middle seat of a crowded plane that has endured weather delays and has children crying in the back, but they don't complain because they are excited to be heading home. And my friends, church can sometimes feel like you're on a plane ride from Afghanistan to JFK. You have to sit still longer than you want to. You sometimes have people sitting in the seat behind you, talking loudly in a language that you don't even understand. 
Sometimes you ask for help, but no one responds. And when you're tempted to get annoyed or even angry, remember that no one sits on a plane unless they are intent on getting somewhere else. When you're on a plane, think about home. And as we sit here in church, think about your heavenly home. We are here because being here reminds us of where we come from and where we're going. The journey is sometimes long and uncomfortable, but our hearts can be full of joy if we remember that our home is to be in heaven with God. When we have that knowledge that I am going there to be with God, then our hearts can have joy even when we have hardships. Those hardships will eventually work to make our counsel wise, our prayers powerful, and our love deep. Knowing this, Instead of just enduring this journey, enduring church, we can be enjoying church. Amen? Moving on to verse 4, we see that if you have this hope that you're headed home, your actions will show it. Verse 4 tells us, knowing where I come from and where he was going, so Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, and wrapped a towel around his waist. We see that Jesus is able to recognize a need and take action. First, he gets up from the table. He stops waiting for other people to do what needs to be done. Everyone was sitting around wondering, so where's the water for washing up? Who's going to find a servant to wash our feet? Jesus stops wondering and he gets up. Jesus never points out a problem without also contributing to the solution. And that's what he gets up to do. But notice that as he gets up from the table, Jesus does two more things. He takes off his outer robe and he puts a towel around his waist. I've noticed that sometimes on Sunday, if I see mopping that needs to happen or boxes that need to be moved, I will sometimes get to work and do that. And people will often come and say to me, no, 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 Pastor Sam, we'll do it. Go get ready for whatever you have to do next. But if I go to my office first, take off my suit jacket, and I change into my workout clothes, which I always have in my office, then I find that people get comfortable seeing me do manual labor at church because my clothing change signifies to them that this is really what I want to do. So if you see me moving boxes, wearing my suit, you can be like, oh, he doesn't really want to do this. (laughs) Um, That's kind of true. So the same is true when I talk to people, I find. I find that if I'm looking at my phone or at my watch, then people don't ask me their deep questions or share their concerns with me. They'll sense that I don't really have margin to hear them out. I don't have time for a subsequent conversation. It's only when I clear my schedule and I'm able to sit down with them and say, please, talk and share. I have no distractions. That's when people open up and tell me about the difficult things they might be going through. Some of us ask the people that we claim to love, if you wanted my help, why don't you just ask? And when they say that they feel unsupported, we claim, hey, I offered to help many times, but you've never told me what you wanted me to do. But when we offer to help, without first taking off our robe and wrapping a towel around their waist, then we haven't demonstrated really what it means to serve. But Jesus is ready to serve and meet the needs of others. He does this first by laying his anxiety aside. I find this to be remarkable, given the difficult week he is facing. But he makes himself emotionally ready 
to focus on the needs of others. He's also able to clear aside his schedule, clear his mind of all distraction, and be fully present and serve his disciples and show them love. This past Easter, we had a week of revival, Monday through Friday leading up to Easter. And we had high school students come and work to do child care during that week. There was one high school senior who came to watch the kids who told me, hey, I got the Zoom call at 8 p.m. I'll be able to help watch the kids anyway. I don't have to say anything on this call. I just have to show my face at the beginning and keep my AirPods in. And I told him, that's fine. And I watched how things unfolded. As I expected, the kids came in and no one sat next to him because he had his laptop open. No one made eye contact. No one joked with him, even as he walked around helping with the activities because he had his AirPods in. The kids pretty much ignored him because they saw that he wasn't fully available for them. But later on, I checked in that room and I saw him after his Zoom call was over. His laptop and AirPods were put away and by then, there were kids on his back, literally, laughing and yelling at him, pulling his hair as he was playing hangman on the whiteboard with some other kids. The kids at that point wanted his attention. They had opened up to him. They were having fun, and he was having fun too. So there is this difference between getting up to serve and getting up to serve after you've taken off your outer robe and wrapped that towel around your waist. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So you have to show that you care by removing your distractions, suspending judgment, and being truly present with the people with a heart of love. And that is when you begin to experience a deeper connection. So all of us, when we come to church and say, God, I'm available for church, we have to also remove our social coping mechanisms if we want to experience a deep spiritual connection. Right after worship, if you move towards the fellowship hall, you have to fight the temptation to appear busy. You're going to want to, for no reason at all, to pull out your phone as if you have like things to catch up on. You have to not do it. Because if you use that social coping mechanism to create the sense of identity for yourself as someone that has so many things to do, then you're not going to be able to experience the connection God wants you to have. Instead, you have to invite God to lead you. As you move from sanctuary to fellowship, Paul, you have to be like, God, I want to be like a leaf gently carried by the wind. God, I am here wanting your guidance. Please fill me with your peace. Guide my thoughts and words and lead me into conversations as you desire. Then you have to believe that God will give you fresh eyes to see people in that room with a fresh perspective, that God will fill your lips with words that will be the right words to say to the people around you, that God will make your heart compassionate and give your mind curiosity so that the spiritual connection God wants you to experience, he will lead you into. We will go deeper in fellowship only when we lay aside our robe of our public persona and our glib answers. And instead, we have to wrap the Holy Spirit's leadership around us. Our conversations will be more meaningful, and we will experience deep connection only when we first lay aside and put on. Amen? To get deeper, not just in fellowship, but to get deeper in our worship and our relationship with God, we have to go through the same process. My default mode of communicating with God 
it's kind of like I send them a text. Hey, God, it's me. I'm just checking in. I want to make sure that you're all good. Text me if there's something you want me to do. And that's sort of the way I pray. I casually pray. All right, God, I'm here. I have five minutes. If there's something you want to tell me, go. When we talk like that to God, when that is our posture before God, we are unfit to receive guidance from God. When we seek to do church in this way, the result is that we all become much less than a sum of our parts. We can have many brilliant, nice, and moral people gather, but the church that we build will be weak, like a castle made of sand constantly collapsing under its own weight. Church can only be healthy when people acknowledge that worship must begin with acknowledging God's great worth, where we say, God, you are glorious, and I lay aside every other distraction and I fix my eyes on you. My focus is on you, so speak to me at your pleasure. It is an honor just to be close to you. Like a commoner, that is in awe because he is summoned into the king's royal court, we have to recognize that it is amazing simply to be in God's presence. We should be adoring God. We should be attentive to God whether he is speaking to us or not. And the person that honors God is the one who receives clear directions from God. It's only when you first put aside your pride and busyness and you wrap up reverence and humility around yourself that you become ready to experience a real relationship with God. A church built by people who know how to get up, lay aside their cloak and wrap a towel around their waist, they always become much more than a sum of the parts. We might not look like much in and of ourselves, but when we are ready for true worship and fellowship, God gathers together the people that are dysfunctional and traumatized, the people who are overlooked and marginalized, and God binds them together and fills them with the Holy Spirit, and then that church becomes alive and unstoppable. And in such a, ch and in such a church, we see people doing what Jesus does here in verse 5. And Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. Washing the feet of the guests, that is the work that was reserved for the lowest servant in the household. And when Jesus does this work, all the disciples are shocked. Peter responds with characteristic, loud indignation. When Jesus came to Simon Peter in verse 6, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. And when they see Jesus washing their feet, nobody is saying, oh yeah, I worked hard so I deserve this. Wash my feet, Jesus. No one can say that. Everyone becomes shocked and humbled by the way Jesus serves them. The way that they're served, the depth of love that they receive, causes them to be humbled. And this confounds me because honestly there are times when I think, I don't want to serve my daughter any more than I already do because I feel like that would just spoil her. Has any parent thought this with me? You're like, I don't want to do any more for my kid because my kid is already kind of a little bit lazy is what we find ourselves tempted to think. 
And it's true, it is possible to spoil our children. If I get her a cup of water whenever she asks, or when I clean up her room even when she doesn't ask, my service to her might puff her up. However, I was thinking about this. Wouldn't my daughter grow in humility if I serve her less? Or would she grow in humility if I serve her more? The question I found myself asking is, is she not as spiritually mature as God wants her to be because I'm doing too much for her or because I'm not doing enough? As I sat with that question, God brought to mind this memory of my dad kind of duct taping his leg together. My dad worked in construction and he kind of figured it out as he went. And one day he was like on the phone getting another deal closed while taking a... um, jigsaw hammer and cutting through some wood that he had balanced on his knee and he because he was distracted cut a huge gash into his upper thigh and what he did was as he was bleeding profusely over the jeans he just put duct tape around it three times drove home came and explained the situation to my mom and they literally just super glued his wound shut And I came home one day, and he was just like on his chair going like this with his leg, with his pants, just with the strip of cloth cut from there, drenched in blood with super glue just on the little hairs of his leg. I remember walking in and asking what happened, hearing from my mother what had happened, and thinking, this man has taken risks and dealt with injury and insult to be able to provide for this family. And because of how devoted he was, I found myself thinking, I should do everything I possibly can to be a good son because he's holding nothing back in doing his best to be a good father. I wonder if some of you have similar experiences where you might be able to say, objectively, I give my kids more than my parents gave me. But when you think about it, you realize that I do not serve my family with the same utter desperation and full surrender as my parents exhibited towards me. And I think, why was I more mature and humble at that age than my daughter seems to be? And I think the answer is, it's not because I did too much for her. It's that I didn't do enough. My daughter never saw me do the equivalent of washing her feet. For me, I have many memories of seeing my dad with super glue on his leg. That's one. But there are many other moments when I'm like, this is the equivalent of this man lowering himself to wash our feet, to be there for us. And I wonder, can my daughter have those memories of feeling shocked to see the extent of my love, the risks that I would take, and the foolishness I would endure to do my best for her? Has she seen that? And if she has not, perhaps that is the reason that she does not have the mindset that I had at that age. I often say to my daughter, you're soft. (laughs) You have no idea what hardships our family has been through. But as I was preparing this sermon, I realized it's me that's gotten soft. I'm not loving and serving my family to the extent that my father did. He took on risks to become vulnerable, and he desperately cried out to God, to be blessed so he could be a blessing to his family. He served us with a desperate dependence on God, and that is what I think I lack. I lack that utter desperation. I don't dream about her future and pray for her with a radical boldness 
and devotion of my parents. The future I want for her is a future that I think I can actually provide on my own. It doesn't require me to be desperately relying on God and exercising courage, embracing the risk of rejection. I don't cling to God to give her the things that I'm currently giving her. And I'm not saying that I need to go spend more money on her or to go into debt to give her more lessons, but I need to pray outside my comfort zone on her behalf. I need to learn what it means to want for her something that I can't just give to her out of my excess. What does it mean to pray for her to have more health, more holiness, more freedom, and more courage, more growth, more contentment? When I want more things for her sake, daring to lower myself to be vulnerable before God, to beg God and say, God, would you bless me so I can extend these blessings to her? Then like the disciples who had their feet washed, that is when my daughter will be impacted by the way people around her serve when I do it more fully and more committedly in the spirit of Jesus. It's those of us who woke up to hear our moms praying for us in the early morning that become humble and motivated. It's those of us who saw our parents do what we could not have done given our self-consciousness that become motivated to live with gratitude. It doesn't matter how powerful or privileged our parents were. We were blessed to the extent that we saw their desperate devotion for our good. And this means that everything I did in my past to get power and privilege, that is not what will move my daughter's heart. I have to live with devotion in the now, doing everything necessary to see her receive the fullness of God's love for her. And that's what makes my daughter wonder, why is my dad washing my feet? And she'll ask, why do you serve me to this extent? It makes me uncomfortable to see you be so uncomfortable for my sake. But just as Peter and Jesus had a conversation that allows Peter to understand and become motivated, God will guide us to have that sort of conversation with the people we love and serve so that we all may embrace more fully God's will for our lives. Let's quickly review the conversation the disciples have with Jesus after the foot washing. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus serves us so that we can serve others. He has given us an example to follow, and we will be able to follow his example no matter how hard our lives might be, no matter how many things are going wrong in any given week, if we remember where we have come from and where we are going. Jesus fully expresses his love to the utmost, even though he's got this terrible week ahead of him, because he remembers where he comes from and where he is going. He gets up, he takes off his cloak, puts that towel around his waist because he has this knowledge. So if you look at your life and you see yourself have, as having gone on autopilot for some time, if you haven't been taking off your cloak and putting that towel around your waist, if you haven't been having the Holy Spirit lead you and you've settled into a shallow routine, then I want you to think about 
where you have come from and where you are going. Because when we feel lost and disoriented, if we take the time to consult the map that tells us our origin and destination, then we begin to live with purpose again. That map is the Bible. When we meditate on Scripture, we remember we come from God and are headed home to Him. And that is when, on this journey, we will live in a humble way that inspires many. It's the 32nd anniversary of our church. It's a good time for us to think about how we are doing, how are we doing. We should not be looking at appearances. We shouldn't be counting numbers like attendance or offering. The way to determine how we are doing is to ask, do we know where we come from? Do we know where we're going? And does that knowledge show in the way we wash each other's feet? Are we doing to others what Jesus has done for us? Let us feel the weight of those questions in a way that brings us down to our knees. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you that you have never used your busyness or your hardships as an excuse to keep from loving us and serving us to your utmost. We thank you that there has never been a time in which you have neglected us or failed to give us your best. We thank you that you are able to do this because you always knew what it means to have home in your heart. So God, like Jesus, would you help us to know and build our security in you so much that we're able to get up and take off our outer cloak and wrap that towel around your waist and interact with each other as you desire. God, if we have been experiencing worship while on autopilot, if we have been experiencing fellowship just only experiencing our social coping mechanisms connecting us to people on a shallow level, would you help us to put aside our worldly abilities? Would you help us to be led by the Spirit so that vulnerably we might be able to encounter you and encounter one another in deeper and more real ways? God, would you remind us of how much we have been loved by even the previous generation. Remind us that despite all of their many flaws, our parents, our biological parents, and our spiritual parents, they cried out to you in a desperate way. And they experienced you do something awesome in their days. Help us to be grateful for their example of faith. Help us to recognize what they have done in their best moments. To help us to honor them, and receive from their example so that we can be equipped to lead others and serve others in the same way. God, would you make it so that even when we feel a little bit lost and aimless on any given Sunday, would you remind us of where we come from and when we're going so that we can know that every Sunday ahead of us and every year ahead of us is a year in which we'll experience more of your glory. All these things we pray in Christ's name.